everyone. This is Charlie Levine, and you're listening to the Angler's Journal podcast, brought to you by Angler's Journal magazine. We are a quarterly publication that celebrates fishing in all of its forms, whether that's art, surf, flats, inshore, offshore, fly, adventure. We cover it all because, Monty, we love it all. <laughs> and today I have a really great guest, um, author Monty Burke. Uh, if you've been in the fishing game for some time, I'm sure you've come across some of his articles. Really talented writer and just put out an incredible book about tarpon. It's called uh, Lords of the Fly. And I want to make sure I have the tagline here. Fly Madness, Obsession in the Hunt for World Record Tarpon. Um, it's an incredible book and a lot to unpack there. But I guess just start, Monty, how's it going? I'm great. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for making the time. Um, now, with this book, the first thing I asked you, uh, did this have anything to do with Lord of the Flies when you were thinking of this title, or did it just work out that way? Well, I mean, I, I certainly like the allusion to that book, which was, uh, of course, a book that we all read probably, I can't remember what grade, sixth grade, maybe seventh grade, eighth grade, I can't remember, but I did, I just loved Lords of the Flies, seemed such, such a cool uh Cool title. And, you know, I, I think there are, you know, if you really want to dig down, if you want to do some comparative literature, I think you could dig down and see some similarities. I mean, maybe uh, Billy Pate and Tom Evans or Ralph and Piggy, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe the actual Lord of the Flies, that head with all the buzzing uh, bugs around it uh, is the tarpon. I'm not really sure. You could you could probably go as far as you want with that. But no, I just oh, I love I absolutely love that title. It was such a, a epiphany when it came to me. So. Right. And I mean, when it comes to fly fishing, that's sort of the apex mountain, right? Tarpon, especially for a flats fisherman. There is nothing bigger or more destructive out there to try to go catch. I would say, and you know, I think that it, um, I mean, I would agree with that. There are other people who might say permit or steelhead or whatever, but I think there's something about what's cool about tarpon fishing, most of it anyway, is it's, it's hunting, really. It's not really fishing. I mean, you're in the bow of a boat someone's pulling you around and you can see these things either swimming at you or laid up um, sometimes you know blooping um, so and you're in shallow water I mean you're in you know four to eight feet of water most of the time sometimes a little bit deeper now but not much uh, and you know they just they just are just remarkable creatures I was actually just down the Everglades last week and every time I see one I, you know my heart flutters I mean it's just the coolest thing they're just enormous you know I explained to my kids that some of the fish I was casting to last week were as big as I was. In fact, not as tall as I was, but but weighed more uh, or weighed almost as much as I did. Uh, wow. And, uh, you know, it's just a crazy, if you put it in that context, like it's just a crazy thing. And then, of course, they fight like crazy. And one of the few things I think in sport where the animal that you're hunting or fishing for actually fights back. I mean, like really fights back, right? So when we trout fish, even when I salmon fish, a lot of it's just holding the rod up, let the fish kind of tire itself out. If you do that with a big tarpon, you're gonna have a long, long day. You and the tarpon will have a very long day. So it actually requires, you know, you using a lot of muscles and, and using, you know, angles and all of this interesting stuff. And I find that to be very interesting, uh, to, you know, to have something that almost comes to you on equal terms. I mean, in some ways it's maybe weighted towards their favor with the size of your rod and the hook and all the stuff they can do when they're on the end of that hook. Sure. Yeah, there. It's one of those knee-shaking moments when you're standing on the on the bow, you know, casting area of a of a flats boat, and here comes you know a pack of tarpon, like you said. I mean, if you're 
in the Everglades or somewhere down there, you could be a hundred pound fish and you're with a 12 weight. And it's just like, I don't know who has the upper hand. It's, <laughs> you do have the boat to chase them around, but even that it's like, if there's any weak link or Nick in your armor, that fish is going to just find it and wreck you. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's as much a mental thing. I mean, I remember hooking my first couple of tarpon, I, the fir very first one I ever, uh, hooked and actually landed i fought it for two and a half hours like that's amateur hour right i should i haven't done that ever since and never would just because of what it does to the fish and to me but it's there i remember thinking at times you know there were all these stories people told me but oh i just like to jump them and then break them off and i was like in the middle of this fight i was like maybe i want to jump them and break them off. like i kind of see where they were coming from but um you know so it's this mental thing as well like when you're actually fighting a fish you're like damn i gotta like haul you gotta get ready here and i'm gonna be ready for whatever it is, 20 minutes, 45 minutes, hopefully not two and a half hours. Uh, one uh, anecdote in my book I thought was hilarious was um, uh, Billy Pate's guide told me that one time he fought a fish for 12 hours. Whew. Of course, the first thing that I thought of as a, a paying fishing client was, man, that must suck to be his fishing partner. You wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't get a lot of bow time if that happened when he hooks into a fish. Oh my God, that's a long time. I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. And but I mean, you can see why these guys get so obsessed with it, because once you experience it and see it and it's so visceral, um, it's like being in a ring with, a you know, boxing this thing. And um, I, I have to ask you, though. So when I first started the book, it starts out with this fellow, Tom Evans, who's yep. a, pretty much owns those fly fishing world records now or, or has. And and there's a very famous story that I had heard about his guide and a buddy of yours, Steve Huff, and how Steve ended up actually catching the world record fish before Tom. Right. Now, I was curious if you could share that story and then, you so, know. Yeah, I actually lead off the, the book with um, with that anecdote. There's a, uh, the two of them at this point had, had sort of, you know, quote unquote, discovered Homosassa, this, this place about 70 miles north of Tampa. Were there, you know, there have been a couple of people fishing it, but word had not really gotten out. Um, and they go up there and they've got this, you know, basically tarpon paradise themselves. Steve said they were, Steve's not a liar. He said there were 10,000 fish at some times. You just look around, they were laid up everywhere, flipping around everywhere. And, you know, they, they'd been fishing for them. They didn't have the equipment really to, to catch too many of the really big ones at this point. I mean, their rods were breaking and the hooks were breaking and the reels were blowing up on them. But uh, there was one moment they were out on the boat and they'd been eating, you know, there's no place to really eat around there. So they'd been eating fried food for like three weeks in a row, three weeks straight. And um, <laughs> Tom, as well, you know, this happens sometimes with the boat said, you know, I got to I got to go to the back of the boat, back of the boat and, ha and hang over it. So he's hanging off the back of the boat. Uh, Steve's in the front, in the front of the bow, you know, looking away, of course. And here come uh, some tarpon to uh, a little string of tarpon coming by. And Evan says, cast him Steve and Steve's the guide and he says nah, I'm not gonna do that that's not why I'm here I'm here to guide you it's not really my place to do that so those fish go by Evans is still hanging off the back of the boat and two more fish come by and Evans says cast him Steve and Steve's like no I'm not gonna do that and he says Steve you know in his rough voice damn it cast to those fish so Steve picks up a rod chucks out a big yellow I mean the streamers they used back in the day were hilarious they were like four or five inches long chucks out a big yellow thing at him and the bigger one of the duo grabs it, brings the fish in, uh, you know, back in the day, they killed all the big fish they caught. So they, they killed it, brought it back to a, um, a fish house, had it weighed, weighed 186 pounds, which was, I believe, either 12, it was 14 pounds bigger than the standing world record. 
um, which is a huge, I mean, that is a massive quantum leap, right? And um, <laughs> Steve, because he was a guy, decided not to um, submit it to the IGFA for official world record certification. Um, you know, he just didn't think that was the right thing to do. And it became this kind of like fish for Tom that like it was the, the bar had been set, no matter whether, whether it was the official record or not, the bar had been set. In fact, Tom caught 177 pounder about a week later which did become the official world record, but he always knew there's a bigger one. He had one bigger uh, and it took, you know, many years, but eventually Tom would break that record as well. Um, so, yeah, that's, so that's how, that's how the book leads off. It's, it's such a great story. story. I mean, it's, it says a lot about Steve's integrity and it's pretty funny because I can right. picture this guy with his butt hanging off the boat and then all of a sudden hooks into that fish and, you know, it's. I had heard that story somewhere, and I was wondering if you heard it, and if it, that maybe motivated some of the reporting that came afterwards. Did you? Did it go that way? I mean, I would say the impetus for all of this was probably Steve. Actually, Steve Huff. Um, uh, I was fortunate enough. I think it was 13, 14 years ago. I was assigned by the magazine Garden Gun to go do a story on Steve, and so I went down and hung out with him. He's, you know, lived in the Keys forever and he moved, uh, he, at this point he'd moved to Everglades City on the western side of the uh, Everglades, the sort of more remote place, remote side. And um, we had a blast. We didn't actually fish for tarpon during that trip. It was in the middle of January or something like that. So we fished for snook and we just had a really good time hanging out. Uh, and then um, I, I did another story for Garden Gun on Carl Hyacin, the writer, and I called Carl and I said, hey, they want me to do a story. He said, that's great. I'll do it on one condition. We go fishing with Steve Huff. And I said, okay. Throw me in that briar patch, let's do it. So on that trip, we did actually fish for tarpon a little bit. Um, and then I think it was the the year afterwards, I got wind that one of Steve, so Steve's got this interesting thing. He's got, he, 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 he never takes on new clients. He's got like a list of 12 clients and it's not a dead man's shoes thing. It's not like if someone dies, he replaces them with someone else or if someone retires or quits. He just keeps paring the list down. In fact, one time he, uh, he, um, George H.W. Bush asked to if he could fish for a couple of days with Steve and Steve said no because one of his clients was booked. Another one of Steve's clients one time gave him a condominium as a tip. That's how much fun he had on the trip. So anyway, you know, oh. it was just, I, I, but I heard that one of his regulars couldn't go, couldn't make it and didn't look like he was going to make it, uh, you know, kind of ever again. And I'm not usually this bold, but I called up Carl actually and I said, hey, what do you think about me asking, uh, you know, to take this guy's place? And Carl was like, you know, there's no harm in trying. Um, and he was right. So I called up Steve and he said, sure. And so ever since then, we fished uh, every year together. We missed 2020 because of the pandemic, uh, but we fished every year together. And, you know, while we were on the boat, the boat's a small place. You know, you, you, you talk about everything. And then, of course, we would, I would stay with him and his wife and we would have uh, dinners and wine and stuff like that. And he would mention these stories that mention this place called Homosassa. And I just love the name to begin with. I mean, it's such a cool kind of, you know, Native American name. It means river of fishes, actually, is what it means. Um, and he would, you know, he mentioned the fishing there, obviously, and then he started to talk as the years went by, he started talking about kind of the shenanigans that went on off the water. Um, and so that really got my interest peaked. Um, and then I met Andy Mill a couple of years after that and um, did a story on him. And while I was doing that story on him, you know, he, he's a, Andy didn't fish much in Homosassa, but he's a big tarpon historian as you know, he's doing his podcast Millhouse right now that, that kind of captures, he wants to capture all this history. He's a big, he's big into that. So he kept talking about it. And then I, I think it was in uh, like the late winter of 2018, 
I remember I was actually sitting in this very spot. Andy called and said, hey, look, dude, you've got to do this book. You've got to do a book on this. These guys are getting old. Stories are going to go away. And I st I'm still like, uh, you know, I don't know. I just come off writing a football book about a football coach. Uh, and my second book about football coaches. And I thought it might be a hard sell to go back to a fishing book. But he gave me the number of Tom Evans, actually. And Tom lives in Vermont uh, in a place that's about a four-hour, four-and-a-half-hour drive from here. And so I called Tom. And he said, why don't you come up for a couple of days uh, and we'll talk. And, you know, just on a total wild lark at this point, I didn't know anything was going to work. You know, I just said, screw it. I'll go. So I went up, sat with him in his, in his big chair and his big feet, prop, big legs propped up on. He just talked for a day and a half. And uh, I remember leaving his house, beautiful house in Grafton, Vermont. And um, in the middle of a snowstorm coming home and thinking to myself, you know, holy crap. Like this, this is a book. Um, it be, so it kind of became a book for me then. Um, it didn't necessarily become a book for some of the people that I work with, my agent and uh, some of my editors that I've worked with, that they didn't actually see it. They didn't really see what I saw until I actually, you know, put some things down on paper. Um, and the cool thing about writing a book too is like, you know, I, put, I, I wrote, I think I wrote a 30 page, you know, uh, proposal, basically treatment of this thing, outlining who I was gonna interview, Stu Apt, all that, but like that. But then the amount of stuff that I discovered kind of like once you dive in and you start reporting, like just all these new worlds were open up to me. All these new characters came flooding in. All these new stories came flooding in. So uh, it's a really fun, uh, it's kind of a fun process. I always love looking back at my proposals and seeing how, how little I knew basically when hmm. I sat down to write those things is always interesting. So it changed a lot from your initial um, perspective or something? Didn't necessarily change, but but it it just blossomed. It bloomed, right? It had it was this little tiny seedling, and then it became this full fledged huge sycamore tree, or you know whatever. <laughs> I mean, it was like yeah. it's it's just so cool how it how it happens. I mean, one example is uh, I never heard of Bobby Arrow, who uh, I don't know if you I don't know if, if you're to that point in the book, but he's a um, he's a gangster, uh, was a gangster, I should say. Uh, he's since deceased, but you know, and this guy just like was a, a, a true gangster who you know went to jail for eight years and you know was was not uh he had a great lawyer so he got away with some of the worst things he did but um he was a true gangster who loved fly fishing um he actually uh, started a boat company called mangrove boats of these beautiful but kind of unwieldy boats he started a push pole company he helped steve abel start abel reels i mean he was really mm -hmm. good. um and you know he was of course like just a terror on the flats i mean people People got guns, their tires were slashed, there were FBI agents all over the place, you know, looking for this guy. And, uh, but, but like, that's a dude I'd, I'd never, I'd never would have ever run into this guy had I not kind of gone down this rabbit hole and started calling people. I called the officer who arrested him, you know, I called his lawyer, I, you know, it was like, it called his former business partner, you know, called Steve Abel. Like, it was just all these things sort of build and build and build, and you discover all these great. That's one of the really fun parts of this whole thing is like, going down these, this rabbit hole and actually finding things is so fun. All the reporting. That's, yeah, that's great. That's really interesting. And, you know, one of the, one of your really probably best-selling books was about Nick Saban, right? That's and great. I was going to ask you, you know, it, I don't know, I, I don't know anything about Nick, but I am a college football fan and you see he's reached this pinnacle in his career and he's sort of the benchmark and he's got to be obsessed and he's got to be super driven did you see similar qualities in some of the the guides and anglers you spoke to for this book? Of course. I mean, I, I would say that all of the books I've written and, and most of the magazine stories 
I've written for that matter have to do with obsessed people. I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with obsessed people. I mean, I love, no matter what it is really. I mean, I, you know, I think it's, it's you know, Saban's obsession has obviously led to lots of fame and national titles and, uh, but he's not too different from Tom Evans. Yeah. You know, who, who only people in this little tiny world of saltwater fly fishing have, have ever heard of. Um, so there are a ton of similarities. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, a little bit less, I guess, when you come to the whole team aspect and all that stuff and the fame and the accolades, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've always loved, I, one of my favorite books is The Orchid Thief written by Susan Orlean. And um, it's about this dude who's just obsessed with this, this incredibly rare orchid, the ghost orchid. And he goes to all these lengths to go into the Everglades section and cut it and find it. And he gets, he gets busted. But and she has this great line there. Like, you know, we, we tend to think as we get older that obsessions are rather naive. Um, which, you know, they kind of seem like a childlike kind of thing. Um, and that may be true, but I think obsessions have a lot of, like, there's a lot, I think we're all probably obsessed with something. I think there's a lot that, if you take all of our little tiny obsessions, no matter what they're about, if you're LeBron James, you're obsessed with basketball, or Tom Evans, obsessed with, uh, you know, tarpon fishing, you're obsessed with collecting cards or whatever. I mean, these little obsessions kind of make the world go around. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's kind of what animates us. Uh, you know, obviously there's a down, there's a dark, very dark uh, downside to obsessions. I mean, I think it was Sylvia Plath who said, I desire the things which will, which will kill me in the end. And that's basically, you know, a lot of these uh, obsessions lead to very bad endings. And in fact, they did uh, in my book, you know, they, they do lead to a bad ending for a lot of the people who were there, but also the place, also home sass of the fishery. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to me, this is, it's just, I don't know, it's so fascinating. My first book was about, or my second book actually was about, um, you know, people trying to catch the world record bass. I wasn't even. Oh, so belly. Yeah, sow belly. I wasn't even like a conventional fisherman at that point, but the, but the people were so interesting. What they were, what they were trying to do, you know, it was just, I don't know. I, I love people aspiring for something, going for a goal and that, you know, Nick Saban's not any different from any of these people. I kind of had a feeling and, you know, you get that sense when you read about these guys tying knots for days or doing some sort of weird finger strength exercise to to get an edge and you could see it. And, and I could, you know, I could see how it would be fun to be around that, too, and just kind of absorb some of it. Totally. So as a writer, Monty, I know you worked at Forbes for many years and obviously you've written a, a few books. And um, did you ever think like mixing fishing and writing would would get you to this this really cool point? Um, I mean, it's kind of a complicated question because I've, I've often been steered away from writing about fishing um, by editors, by by uh, agents and all that sort of stuff, too, which is which is fine. I get it. You know, I mean, there's believe it or not. There are more people who want to read about famous football coaches than famous tarpon fishermen. But uh, I have always loved both of them. Um, and in fact, I had a kind of my, uh, you know, road less traveled moment in my life was uh, after college, I applied. I was the old, I am the oldest of three kids. Uh, you know, I, I figured I needed to set a good example for my younger brothers. I got out of college and I decided to apply to business school. I thought that was the responsible thing to do and did apply and got into a business school. But simultaneous to that, I was, I was living in Washington, DC. And I used to go up, you know, I was so obsessed with the Latorte Spring Run, which is a little tiny creek outside of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where, you know, Vince Marinero and Charlie Fox and some of the real legends of the, of the fly fishing game had fished. And by that time it was sort of degraded, but there were still some nice fish in it. But I would, so I was so obsessed that I would, after work, I would put my dog in the car at six o'clock 
drive for two hours up there, fish like the 45 minutes that I would get in a sulfur hatch before it got dark and then drive home. And so it just became this kind of crazy thing. So as I was applying to business school, I actually ran, I discovered this old dude up in the, on the tour named Ed Shank. He was sort of the dean of the whole thing. And I met him and then I decided, hey, you know, I'd never written a story before, but I was like, I, he didn't know that, but I was like, yeah, I want to write a story about you. And he was like, sure. He didn't ask, thank God, where I was going to publish it because I, I didn't have a publisher at the time. So I wrote this, you know, this tome. I wrote like a 4,000 word story on Ed Shank and Latour. And I'd read all these books. I was like, I brought everything to it. And um, I sent it out to a ton of, sent it to Field and Stream and Sports of Field and Black Fisherman and every, everybody. And everybody said no, except for one little publication down in, um, you're probably aware of them, down in uh, South Carolina called Sporting Classics. I still have the letter in my drawer here. The editor there, Chuck Wexler, wrote me, this is like, weeks after I got my acceptance to business school, wrote me a letter and said, we'd like to buy your story on Ed Shank. And we'd like to buy it for $200. And I said, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> so I, I deferred business school. My uh, future father-in-law was uh, engaged at that point to my now wife and uh, future father-in-law was not that excited about the decision I made. And it probably wasn't the best financial decision I've ever made, but it was certainly the, one of the best decisions I've made for sure. So I ended up just letting the business school thing go and, and jumping in uh, to the writing thing. So it's always kind of started with me with fishing. Um, you know, I veered off into a ton of different, I mean, Forbes was a, such a great um, place to learn how to report, how to like fact check and all that stuff. And also interview like hugely high profile people and be in a, you know, intense situation and be able to ask your questions and be able to put the story on paper. So uh, I really enjoyed writing about hedge fund guys and, H.W. Bush and all the people I interviewed there, but um, you know, fishing's always been a, a true love of mine. So it's always it's always fun to write about. I try to do it too much sometimes because you can get a little bit too close, and you know, you find yourself not repeating things, but thinking about repeating things and having repetitive thoughts sometimes. So you, I, it's good to veer away from it every once in a while. Sure, sure. No, that's what a cool story. Well, I'm glad it led you to that place. And I feel like you were able to sprinkle in some fly fishing stories into the Forbes mix, too, which was probably a little different for them. I had uh, people accusing me of like, you're running the biggest racket here. I mean, I did crazy stuff. So they wouldn't let me do it all the time, but I probably did two. Back in the day, we had 30 issues a year or whatever. And I'd get, you know, my 15 years there, I think I got 30 stories. So about two a year, 30 about fishing. And, uh, you know, I did insane things. I went to, I went to Russia for two weeks to, to fish with this or to try to interview this kind of like part uh, of darkness kind of character uh, right straight out of Conrad, this rich uh, Englishman who had bought these awesome salmon rivers up in Russia. And I, I went to Labrador. I went to Quebec to fish for salmon. I mean, it was kind of it was a, it was a little bit of a racket. I'll admit it now, but it was awesome. It was totally wow. awesome. One of the perks, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure, you get to do some cool stuff and meet some interesting people. I was going to ask you if, you know, is there someone in uh, Lords of the Fly who stands out as, you know, you, you talked about how close you are to Steve, but any other interviews or people you came across that just like really changed you or somehow and made a huge impression on you? Um, you know, it, it, it was just a thrill to, I, you know, I've been reading either reading these guys or reading about these guys since I was 12, since I just fell hard for fishing and for fly fishing. And, you know, so I'd read about Chico Fernandez. I'd read about Flip Pallet, uh, Stu Apt, uh, you know, Billy Pate, all of these, uh, Al Fluger even. I mean, all of these kind of like giants in the sport, uh, you know, and even 
giants out there who, who were sort of outside the sport, Jim Harrison, Tom McGuane, Brodigan. Uh, so it was just a thrill to be, to have an excuse, I'll put it this way, to have an excuse to call up Tom McGuane and say, hey, do you think you have some time in this month, X, you know, X month to sit down with me and talk a little bit about the, the crazy Key West days? And he says, sure, why don't you come out here and, and we'll hang out for a couple of days? Oh um, God, that's awesome. You know, and so, and then, and then to call up, you know, Chico and he's like, uh, yeah, you know, I'm in Miami this week. Why don't you come down? Uh, so, it, you know, that was just, was just thrilling. And, you know, a lot of them, you know, were pretty, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, just a cool thing to, to sit down and listen to Flip Pallet. Flip Pallet's voice is so cool anyway, but to sit down and have him cook me a bison burger and sit outside in his garage and, you know, and the light rain's falling down and he's telling me all these great stories. It's like, you know, it's pretty, I had to pinch myself every once in a while. That's um, great. But, you know, uh, so Steve has always been, you know, Steve is, is, is a great friend and a person I have a lot of respect for. And Tom, I didn't know very well, Tom Evans. And, um, you know, he's a cantankerous dude. He likes to break things. I think I describe in the book as a, as a bull who's always very pleased to find himself in a China shop. Um, you know, he's a, he was a former nose tackle in college and he's a wrestler and all this sort of stuff. And he's, he speaks, he's got his own little Tom speak. Actually, I have a little section in the middle. I put a glossary in the middle just because it was fun. I didn't want to put it at the end or the, or the beginning because you have to sort of decipher some of Tom's <laughs> idioms and how he talks, stuff like that. So, so he was a guy, you know, that it, I spent a lot of time with him doing this book. And I spent two, two separate years. I spent two weeks with him in his, what he calls coon shack down at home assassin, just, you know, around him all the time. I was on the, in the morning, had breakfast with him, went out on the boat with him during the day, had dinner with him, sat and had drinks with him after dinner, that kind of thing. So, you know, you, you come to kind of like, you know, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, Tom and I don't, but you kind of come to like see people's humanity, which is the point of the whole deal, right? You want to, you want to, you want to see the, that we all are kind of flawed and we all are great, I guess. And, you know, you, you can, the more time you spend with these people, the more you kind of see that. Well, and I think it comes across in your writing. You have such a great style and you really get to know the people that um, you're writing about. And, you know, as a writer, I've interviewed some of these higher profile folks too, and it's, it can be nerve wracking, but then once you crack the ice, they're just, you know, they're, they like to fish too. And it seems like it's one subject everyone likes to talk about, you know, you're not bringing up politics necessarily or trying to make them pick a side. It's just, you know, it's a passion, it's their obsession. So they yeah. kind of open up and you do such a great job of explaining it. And we ran uh, the chapter about Stu Apt in Angler's Journal and, yeah. um, it, it's just so fun. You, you you get closer to these guys, and I think it does demystify them somewhat. And just it sounds like such a cool part of time in the angling world that you know, in the middle of kind of nowhere, Florida, there was this incredible fishery and a handful of crazy guys, and every day was a potential world record. I mean, it's just I don't I don't know if that'll ever happen again. I I, I think you could descri describe describe. I I don't think I'm. I'm pushing it too far to describe it as the single apex moment of the sport of fly fishing. I mean, you, I, you could, well, at least you could argue that. I mean, you had it one in one place for five years, six years in a row at one time. At the same time, you had the world's greatest fly fishermen at that time, all of them, and the world's greatest guides at that time, all in the same place, all at the same time, all trying to do the same thing. And I just don't, I don't know what, you know, of course you have the Jackson on one fly and you have other things now, you have uh, the gold cup and all sorts of things to going, you know, tournaments, all sorts of stuff now too. But just in terms of the sheer level of talent, I mean, you know, Lefty Cray was there for a little while. Uh, 
know, Flip Pallet was there. I mean, it's just, it's just, just pretty mind boggling actually. Um, uh, so yeah, and so, you know, it's funny you bring up Stu because it, 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 there is an interesting um, thing you have to do when you, because all of these people were angling gods to me. Um, and, and, and when they're written about usually, um, in other books and when they write about themselves, they, they, you know, they, they're flawless. A lot of them are, you know, all you hear about when you just, when you read, when I read about Billy Pate when I was younger, he was just the greatest big tarpon guy around, you know, and a great guy. So it was very interesting. You know, I treated this book just like I treated the Nick Saban book. Like I was going to find out who these people were, flaws and all, um, you know, I wasn't going to overemphasize anything. I was just going to just talk to everybody, talk to their friends, talk to their enemies, talk to their frenemies, you know, whatever, and just try to do the most objective job I could do. And, you know, you get, a portrait of Stu App that, uh, you know, maybe Stu wouldn't necessarily write himself, or you get a portrait of Billy Pate that some of Billy Billy Pate's friends might, might not write themselves. But I think it's the tr it's the truer portrait. So, you know, Stu is the Muhammad Ali. I call him the Muhammad Ali of tarpon angling. He was a total shit talker. Uh, he was a a guy. If he, he guided for a little while, and when he guided people, uh, you know, I talked to Guy Valdine, who was his client for a little while, and he was like, it was the most miserable experience ever because you would miss a fish, and Stu would be like, God. Damn it! You did all that wrong. This is what you got to, you know, blah blah blah. Um, but you know, I call him Muhammad Ali because he backed up the talk. You know, I mean, I think Dizzy Dean once said that, you know, it ain't it ain't it ain't bragging if you can back it up. Um, and that's what he did. Uh, you know, there were people. Stu, Stu was such a badass back in the day that people would go to the dock to watch him launch his boat. Like literally, like fan fanboys would go there and just watch and see how he did it. You know, uh, and then you get the same the same kind of portrait of Billy Pate, who is you know, deified beyond belief, uh, you know, in, in most fishing writing. And, you know, as it turns out, he was, he was one of the greatest, you know, he and Tom Evans are right there when it comes to the greatest big tarpon anglers. And also Billy was a great billfish angler as well. Uh, but, you know, like, like all of us, he had his, uh, he had his, uh, he had his flaws, I guess you could say, you know, he loved uh, well, chasing, yeah. chasing women who weren't his wife and he was ultra competitive oh, in the you know, to, to the point of being sort of unfair a lot. So, you know, so the portraits that emerge sometimes are sort of raw, even the one of Tom Evans, by the way, when there's a lot of rawness in that. Um, but I think that they're, you know, objective. Yeah, and it's it's the truth. And it can lead you into a bottle. It can lead you into, you know, all kinds of bad things when you have that mentality that you won't stop unless you're the best. And if something not going to be the best every single day i think right. it bothers those dudes a lot more you know than someone who's just trying to catch a 30 pound tarpon just for fun <laughs> right. Right. just to see that one jump you know that's all they need but uh these these fellows are on an entirely different level and and you do a really great job getting into that um i did want to ask you you know you, you've done a lot of really great hard reporting and I read a piece you did on the Everglades and uh, the situation there with the water quality and cabins for clean water. I think it was in Garden and Gun. It was yep. extremely well done. And I was just curious, um, you know, when you're doing that stuff, that's obviously, I guess, more of the doom and gloom kind of other side, like you're saying, versus these personality profiles. Like, how do you balance it? Um, does Is it harder for you or do you get... Um, just as much satisfaction about that sort of hard reporting stuff. I, you know, I, I do actually. I, I mean, I, I guess if you know, if you had to tie me down, I could only do one for the rest of my life. I'd rather do a personality profile because I think those they're just people are just imminently fascinating. You know, um, but issues, especially. I mean, what you have to kind of do, you have to do kind of a mind trick. You have to uh, 
humanized or personify the Everglades as a living thing, right? And then if you do that, then then a story like that about the Everglades, which was a ton of reporting about, you know, I learned everything you could learn about about the water issues in the Everglades, the canals they went in, when you know, 1940s when all this was set up, and the the, uh, the Cuban brothers who were you know holding the rest of us hostage with their sugar stuff yeah. down there. But if you kind of look at the, if you look at I don't know, to, to, to me, things, I, I rarely write things like that if they're not important to me. Like, the Everglades are, are really important to me. And I think they're actually important to all of us, even those of us who don't know how important they are. Um, because it is because it is a wild place. And it's one of the few great last wild places left, especially in the lower 48. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's the East Coast Yellowstone to a certain degree. Um, and just the diversity of creatures. And I've spent a lot of time in there. I've seen those uh, I've never seen a ghost orchid, but I've seen vanilla orchids, which are which are fairly rare. I've seen roseate spoonbills. I've seen American crocodiles. I mean, it's just like it's so cool to me that that in this, you know, here I live in Brooklyn. I can look out here and see a building. Uh, all I see is buildings. You know, I see a couple things over there, but but it's so cool to me that this place exists and it's important that it exists. So I sort of, if I can internalize that a little bit, then all of that other reporting and, and that, again, that's where Forbes really trained me really well. It's like, how do you get the documents? Uh, you know, how do you talk to a hostile, you know, how do you talk to hostile actors, people who are just not going to like what you're doing? Like when I called the sugar guys, they were not excited at all that I was called, that I was doing this story. You know, in fact, they went, they threatened lawsuits and all this libel and all this crap, you know, so it, it, it being Forbes kind of thickened my skin a little bit in that way. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that because it's, it is hard. So when, when people put up a lot of resistance to what you're doing or threaten you or stuff like that, you kind of, you know, the safest thing is to be like, okay, uncle, I give up, you know. But the but the thing you should do is to is to dig even deeper because that means they're usually hiding something or something like that. So I you know I told, I learned that at Forbes. But again, it's just about it, it, usually when I do those kind of things, it's about places that I just love and can't live without. Wow, that's great. Yeah, sometimes if you're that committed to it too, it's like you you almost get so much stuff you get overwhelmed, and then it's sort of okay. I got to take a sip of water from the fire hose here and try to make this all, you know, boiled into 3000 words or something. Right. Um, yeah. Word counts always piss me off when I do a big, big piece like that. It piss me off while I'm doing it. But when I'm done, I always thank God because the, you, you put in the stuff that you, that you, it always inevitably, the stuff that needs to be in there will be in there. Right. I mean, it, it, and it's, you don't want to overwhelm someone with an 8,000 word story. No one's going to read that. Thing, you know? Right. Especially these days. And I mean, I think it's so appreciated, though, the the amount of time and effort you put into it. And, you know, the the few magazines of us out there left, like we really, I think, try to find that kind of reporting. And, um, yeah, it's just refreshing to read your stuff, man. It really is. Well, thank you. Um, all right. Well, I do have a little game that I've been playing on my podcast. So if you're if you're up for it, you said you have kids, so I'm sure you've played Would You Rather. Okay, yeah, we play, play it all the time in the car. Yep. Um, all right, so we're just going to name, lay out a few things, um, see if we can get a better handle of who Monty Burke is. Ferrari or Porsche? I mean, can you say neither? Does that, does <laughs> that count? Yeah, <laughs> get it. Uh, polling skiff or center console? I think I know the answer. Mm, polling. Striped bass or bonefish? I mean, that's again impossible. I I I, I love bonefish. It's like one of the most organic things you can do. I think waiting a bonefish flat. However, the last ten years or so, I've been getting into striped bass 
fishing on the flats and holy crap is that fun it's like fun to me anyway where i fish anyway they're 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 a little wilier than the bonefish i fish for and you know i've seen legit 30 pounders take a sniff at my fly and that is just unbelievable but again can't pick it because they just you know i'm kind of like love the one you're with you know like uh, when i'm in the bahamas in february give me about you know bone fishing is everything to me you know when i was in the everglades last week tarpon fishing is everything to me when i'm on a you know a brim pond in alabama and i'm throwing a two weight with a little cork popper that's everything to me so i'm sorry i have to pass on that one too i'm checking <laughs> out here i'm sorry well this is not going to go well there because they're all pretty much the same <laughs> that's okay um college ball or nfl college college Love the NFL. Man, too. after I moved to Florida, I really learned what college football is. Yeah. I think once um, you're exposed to college football and the whole the scenery and the pageantry, it just doesn't, you know, it's like impossible for the NFL could never come close to doing that. Yeah, agreed. Um, all right. Tarpon or permit? Tarpon. Yeah. Netflix and chill or go to the movies? Neither. No. Read a book? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Excellent. So what else is on the agenda for this summer? Monty, you got some cool fishing trips planned or are you busy? Uh, working? I do. Well, I do actually. So I got a book due in um, the middle of July. So what the cool thing about that is I'm actually, I'm going to turn it in early. So that gives me two weeks of the deadline. And then it probably gives me like three weeks till after the deadline where I don't, I'll have other things to do, but I don't have that horrible pressure of a book deadline so I can fish. So I, I love my fishing calendar starting in the spring. So I start, and the Catskills always in May. I go fish for trout, which is so fun. And then I do the trip to the Everglades in late May. And then this month, probably in the next couple of days, uh, the flats will be swarming with stripers. Uh, so that'll be really fun. And then later on this month, um, I go with my family up to our cabin on the Marguerite River in Nova Scotia for two weeks. And I fish as much as I can get away with when I'm up there, usually early in the morning when everybody else is still asleep for salmon, which is super fun. And then we usually go to the Cape and fish for more uh, stripers, usually in the flats. And then fall season, uh, you know, if you're a northeastern junkie like I am, the hardtail season is just, you know, again, hard to beat. Like, you know, when you're in it, it's the coolest thing in the world. Like Bonito would be coming through and then the false albacore come through. And then, you know, I used to fish when I was younger. I used to fish till uh, Christmas Eve was always my, but I'd always make a point to go fish on Christmas Eve. And it was actually, Many years ago, it was actually usually a great time to fish because the big stripers, the big girls, the, the kind of the end of the <clears throat> the last ones on the run were coming through and they were massive. That's when the herring came through. They don't come in quite as regularly as they used to, but uh, I'm pulling that back a little bit. I usually fish once or twice in December, but then when it gets down to 30, I, it takes me longer to get geared up in it and then geared down than it does to actually fish. So, Wow, that's an impressive uh, calendar, man. Good on you. That's great. By the way. Fishing all the time, by the way. These I'm in these places and I'm working still too. But but that's you know I, I go to these places because the fishing's good. You know, my wife's like, where do you want to go? I'm like, um, look at some place, see if it's got good fishing. Let's go there. You know. Okay. And how old are you now? I'm 50. I just turned 50. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. But I mean, and the fact that you live in the city, that you can get all of that cosmopolitan stuff out of your system. Like for us down here, it's like my wife always wants to go, you know, catch a Broadway show or blah, 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 bring the kids to Manhattan. And I'll tell you a dirty little secret about the city. It is a great place to fish. I didn't know that when I came. 
I uh, came here and with you know with two buddy. I had a buddy who was an ER doctor and a buddy who worked in finance. And every this is before we were married. Every Friday night during the season, almost every Friday night during the season, we pile into my old crappy Subaru and drive up to Catskills. And then about <clears throat> five years after I moved here, um, I discovered that there are stripers and bluefish. I can actually look out my window right here and see one of my favorite spots everywhere around here. And it's it's a if you want it to be, it's a, it can be a nine to ten month season. I usually make it about an eight month season. But the dirty little secret is that it's an awesome place if you're a fisherman. An awesome place. I'm not I'm not just saying that to you know. I, I I'm past. I've been here long enough. I don't need to go to broad, another Broadway show in my life or any of that. Yeah, that kind of stuff or go to a good restaurant. I don't really care. I'm here. We're basically here. My wife's job uh, keeps us here, but also the fishing is what keeps me sane here. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no, that is a cool secret. And, and even offshore, right offshore, the last couple of years, there's been incredible bluefin bite and yeah, bass swarming in the rivers. It's pretty neat to have that urban fishery right there. That's pretty cool. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, for all our listeners, if you want to pick up a copy of the book, is Amazon the best place for them to go or where should they go? Amazon's fine. IndieBound is great because uh, it's you're getting it from one of your local bookstores and it's always good that, you know, they're they're so good to authors that I always appreciate when people, you know, I mean, they're the ones that host us, you know, when we come through Mobile, Alabama, you know, we go to Page and Pallet or when we go to Birmingham, we go to, there's another great little bookstore there. So it's just, it's, I always try to get people to go there. First, it costs maybe $2 more. You know, it's not much more expensive. And you're supporting the big box guys are great or whatever, but you know, it's good to support the little guys. Too. Oh yeah. What was it again? It's called Indie Bound. So it's I-N-D-I-E-B-O-U-N-D. So if you get an Indie oh, Bound, it'll show you how to get to, it's actually an easier way to do it. It's probably just go to bookshop.org and then you can, you're, you plug in where you are and they'll deliver you one from your local book guy. Oh, well, definitely pick it up, everybody. It's a wonderful read, and I would love to get your byline in Angler's Journal here when you got time in between all your other assignments and fishing trips, but uh, we'll have to swap some ideas, man. It would be wonderful. And um, yeah, thanks for being so generous with your time, Monty. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. No problem. Thank you, Charlie. All right, buddy. Take care. See you.